In today's talk, we are just going to be looking at one doctrine. We're going to be looking at the doctrine of creation. Doctrine, what would be the Hebrew word for doctrine? Doctrine is teaching, right? So what would be the Hebrew word for doctrine? Torah, that's right. There is another word that's sometimes used, it's lekach. Everybody say lekach. It's actually kind of interesting. It's the word from the verb to take. So there's some kind of connection there. Um, when there's truth, it's something to be taken by us. It's something to be aggressively appropriated and made one's own. That's the idea behind doctrine. Some churches would say, we're not about doctrine, we're about Jesus. I, I would suggest to you that's a misunderstanding. Yeshua is doctrine. Because doctrine is the truth of the Word of God. And that's who Yeshua is. He is the truth. Now, some people make doctrine really boring. Some people get really ugly about doctrine. Some people use doctrine as a weapon. It is their machine gun. Um, that, that's not healthy. So, you know, for, so some churches will react and say, we're not about doctrine, we're about Jesus. But um, you can't really split the two up. Because doctrine is all about God and who He is. So today, I just want to look with you at the aspect of who God is as Creator, And if you, have, if you have thoughts or comments, I want to hear them. I really do. So I encourage you, please write them down. And we're going to have discussion at the end. And um, I would love to just go wild in our discussion and just have a great sharing time. But I'm just going to kind of cover some basic things about doctrine here first. Okay. So, the curtain lifts in the opening passage of the Word. And it says, In the beginning... God, verb. Did you notice how many verbs there are in this opening passage in the Bible? Like, God isn't just sitting around doing nothing. He is so active. He is in motion. Uh, Why don't you guys just shout out to me some of the verbs that you see in this passage. God is what? He is creating. What are some other ones? Let's look, look at it together. Genesis chapter 1. He's creating. He's... Hmm? Moving. Dividing. Seeing. Separating. Calling. So when you say calling, he's, he's naming stuff. He's coining terms. He's, he's, um, he's developing language, you could say. He's commanding. He's seeing. Speaking. That's a huge one. He's communicating. He's, he's verbalizing. I can just hear all your scanners in high, high gear right now. It also says he's blessing. He's blessing. Um, here, here are some other things, too. Um, He's, he's sculpting. He's, he's placing. He's arranging stuff. He's moving stuff around. Uh, he's creating color and contrast. And uh, did you notice that after each day of creation, it's like he steps back and he says, that's good. And I don't know, I almost think like the word good, the word, Hebrew word good is tov. And I almost wonder if that isn't, an, it's, kind of a, it's kind of an understatement if you ask me. Like, you could ask someone, so yeah, how was that cookie? It was good. That was a good cookie. How's God? God's good. I mean, I don't know. We use good for everything. I, I like the idea of translating good as magnificent. 
Think about it like that. He, he, just, he just unleashes his creativity and his inspiration, and then he steps back at the end of the day, and he looks at it and says, that's magnificent. That's his creation. Magnifique? Excellent. Yes, that's, that's saying it with flair. Absolutely. So that's, that's the first thing. Like, he's in motion, and as we also mentioned, he's verbal, he's communicating, he's speaking. And... Um, it isn't, you hear him several times speaking with himself. Did you notice that? This is huge. It's like, as, as believers in Yeshua as the Son, we would read this as God the Father and God the Son cooperating with each other in the work of creation. We would see this as God the Father and God the Son communicating with each other. Let's do this. Let's make Adam, man. And um, here, here's, a, here's a passage from the book of Mishle, Proverbs chapter 8, uh, verses 27 to 31, where we have wisdom speaking. The Hebrew word is chokhmah. Everybody say chokhmah. And uh, I, I believe that's Yeshua as the ultimate expression of the wisdom of God. This is what chokhmah says in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 27. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above... When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman. Did you hear that? Yeshua is into construction. He's an architectural uh, phenomenon. I was daily his delight. Did you hear that? Every day, every day of creation, Yeshua was the Father's delight. Rejoicing always before him. Did you hear that? God wasn't just making stuff and not enjoying it. God the Father and the Son were creating the universe and they were loving every minute of it. Yeshua was, was like, yeah, Dad! He was rejoicing before the Father. God was, God was creating with great joy. Rejoicing in the world, His earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. So like when God made Adam, Yeshua, Yeshua just found that so delightful. Like, have you ever had something that was just really, really delightful? Like you could just barely stand it, you liked it so much, it made you so happy? That's the way Yeshua saw Adam when the Father was creating Adam. Um, um, there, I think there's something practical here for us. Like when the, when, when, when the curtain lifts, we see God the Father and God the Son cooperating with each other. You could say that that was the original, it's like a family. A father and a son, that's a family relationship. It's like, it was a family in the beginning, you could loosely say. And in that family, it was a, in that family was love. In that family was inspiration. That family was a hotbed of creativity. Uh, you, you could even say that God in the beginning, uh, often theologians will use the term the Godhead, right? The Godhead is the father, the son, and the uh, working in the beginning. I don't know, the word Godhead doesn't really do it for me. I think of God's head or something. But when I think of God, the Father and Son, as the original fellowship, the fellowship of God, the fellowship of the Father and the Son, that does it for me. Think about that. In the beginning was a fellowship. And in that fellowship was love. In that fellowship was inspiration. In the beginning was a community between the Father and the Son. And they were cheering each other on. They were were creating stuff and saying, that's magnificent. Good job on that one. I love that. That delights my heart. That's, that's the first chapter of the Bible. That sets the tone for the cosmos and their creation. I wonder if that isn't a picture of every family and what every family is designed to look like. I wonder if that isn't a picture of us as a fellowship. Like a place where there's so much love. 
A place where inspiration abounds. A place where people are welcome to be creative and where they are approved of, where we delight in each other, where we say, that is awesome, I love that. That delights me. That's what a family looks like. That's what, that's what a fellowship is created to be. Yeah. We see here too, like, it was really exciting. That first week was really exciting. There was action, there was creativity, there wasn't a dull moment, there was enjoyment of what was going on. Uh, sometimes, sometimes fellowships or families go f- so far from that. Sometimes families get boring or fellowships get boring. There's nothing new. We've been doing the same things for the last 10 years. Um, we spend most of our free time together watching TV Whatever. You name it. That, that, that's like a plague in the Western world uh, for, on families. That is, that is an epidemic in some churches. It is boring. And what we see in this chapter is God isn't boring. And when His Spirit is released in our midst, when we really get into who we are created as, in His image, we're going to come so alive. And there's going to be such inspiration. And we are going to be cheering each other on. And it's going to be anything but boring because it's going to be new and stuff's going to be different. There's going to be creation. There are times when someone will come to a fellowship or they'll be part of a family and there is life and, things, and there is creativity, but that person is still bored. The reason for that might be that person has a dead heart. That person has to wake up inside. If a person comes to a fellowship and God is moving and, his, and, 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 there's, and there's that life and they're still like, this is so boring and I can't wait to go, That person needs to repent because God isn't real to that person. Maybe because they have idols in their life. Maybe because they're not making the Creator their top priority. Maybe because their heart is distant from Him. So sometimes the church is boring because it's just dead and because they've rejected creativity and freshness. But sometimes the church is alive and it's boring to a person because they're dead and because they need to repent and they need to cry out to God like seriously in desperation. Um, here's, here's, here's the thought here. I'm just going to bring my chair over here. And I have a question for you. What's this? That's a cup or a mug. What is this cup or mug made out of? Glass. Okay, but what, what is the glass made of? Sand. sand. What's the sand made of? Tiny rocks. What are those tiny rocks made of? What are they composed of? Silica. What's the silica made of? Silica is a specific compound molecularly, right? But what, are, what's the, but what is that compound of molecules made out of? What are they? What, what, what is a molecular compound made out of? Atoms, that's right. Atoms are elements. They are basic material. But let's take this a little bit farther. This cup is made out of compound molecules that are made out of atoms, but what are the atoms made out of that compose this cup? Nothing. The atoms that are made... The, okay, they're made out of nothing, is one suggestion. Any other thoughts? Hmm? They're created... Made out of sound, made out of what? A spoken word. What do you mean? 
The molecule is technically made out of energy. Okay, but what is that energy? What is it made out of? Yeah, motion. Okay. There you go. In the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you, you think about this. Like, scientists are able to break down matter to atoms. They say atoms exist. No one has ever seen an atom. There's a lot of, there's a lot of theory when it comes to a, a atomic study. But nobody actually can even say what an atom is made of. You, you are right. Uh, who was it who said it's made of nothing? Um, atoms are primarily composed of nothing. There's almost no matter in an atom. But there is, some mat- there is some matter and there's energy. But what is it made out of? Just stop and think about that for a second. People don't actually know what the universe is made out of, what all physical matter in the cosmos is made of on the most basic level. You can keep going smaller and smaller, but what's there? Right, so in scientific or technical terms, everything's made out of energy, but where does the energy come from? And what is the energy? I, I suggest to you that as believers in the God depicted in the Bible, we believe that everything in the universe is made of His Word. It was all spoken into existence. So, what is this cup here composed of? You, you say energy. Um, some some uh, physicists would say light. On a most basic level, an atom is composed of energy or light. But what is that energy? What is that light? We would believe that it is the Word of God. The, this cup was created through the spoken Word of God. He spoke it into existence. In its current form, no. But the matter that it's composed of, the energy that holds those atoms together, that's his word. Um, What did Paul say? He said, all things are held together in Yeshua, the word of God. Uh, what, What does it say in the Gospel of John? In the very beginning it says, in the beginning was the word of God, and he created everything in existence through his word. Um... There's a, there's a, there's a, some of you are familiar with the, the traditional Jewish bracha or blessing that we sing if there's no bread on the table. Uh, we sing the hamotzi if there's bread, but if there isn't, then we sing the shehakol. And that's the traditional formula, blessed are you. And then shehakol nehiyeh bidvaro, by whose word everything came into existence. That's why I love singing that bracha because for us as believers in Yeshua who have read the Gospel of John, we say, yeah, God created the universe through Yeshua, His Word, um, through the wisdom of God that we read about in Proverbs. So, isn't that fascinating to think about? The cosmos were generated through the Word of God. The Word of God holds them together on a subatomic level. Um, here's something that I've contemplated. Did you notice that every single thing you say has a musical note to it? Did you notice that everything you say has a musical note to it? Did you notice that? You could, you could annotize that whole sentence. And uh, every, so basically, like when we talk, we're not just talking, we're actually singing. Everything you say is song. I wonder, I wonder if the Creator in the beginning who created human beings who sing opera and who love to sing, I wonder if He didn't sing the cosmos into existence. Just think about that. What if the Creator in the beginning was singing when He spoke? Unless He was just flat monotoning it. I don't believe that. I don't believe that when He spoke the universe into existence it was a flat monotone. He was singing. Just think about that. The, there was, there's a song through which the matter that this cup is composed of came into existence. I, I, I like thinking about things like that. Here's, here's another thought. What if it isn't just prose through which the universe was generated? What if it was poetry? 
Um, some of us, we really, just the way our brains are built, we really like prose. Like, we like a straight narrative. If we read a book, it's like, just give me the facts and get to the point. Okay? I'm like that. I don't like it when people take a long time to make their point in a book. I have a hard time reading a lot of pop books because I'm like, man, the author just took 200 pages to say what he could have said in five pages. You know, I'm the kind of person who's like, I just read a whole chapter and he didn't give me a single statistic. That was boring. I love stats. Give me some stats, you know? Like, that's the kind of person I am. So, like, sometimes, frankly, poetry doesn't do it for me because of the way my brain is built. Um, I mentioned how I'm reading through the prophets right now. Sometimes I have a really hard time reading through the prophets because it's not my style of communication. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, Just this last week, I was reading in Ezekiel. And uh, Ezekiel chapter 30. And basically, Ezekiel chapter 30 is this... It's like this poetic lament over the armies of Egypt because they're going to be killed by the Babylonian army. Okay, and I read this chapter, and I'm like, man, you just took a whole chapter to really poetically express that the Babylonian army is going to kill the Egyptian army. Why didn't you just say, the Egyptian army is going to be killed by the Babylonians? Period. Next chapter. I, you know, that's, that's the way I think, okay? So frankly, I have a really hard time sometimes reading the prophets of Israel because they're so dramatic, because they're so emotional, because they take like chapters and chapters to make a point. And um, what would be another example? They're like, like Jeremiah is another excellent example. Instead of just saying, Mo, like this city is going to be sacked or Moab's going to be wiped out, he takes like a whole chapter to really... Poetically, uh, poetically express that. Here, I'll, I'll give you an example from Jeremiah. Let's look. Let's look at Jeremiah here for a second and give you an example of that. Um, okay, like okay, Jeremiah chapter forty-eight um, would be an example. It's 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 about Moab, and it just like goes on and on and on. It's actually really depressing. Um, if you're the kind of person that I am, I just get depressed by stuff like this. Um, Moab has been put to shame. It's been shattered. Wail and cry out. Declare by the Arnon that Moab has been destroyed. Judgment has also come upon the plain. Just, I don't know, it's like all all of this stuff that, that is not prose, that is not like stats and facts and getting to the point. It's like this is written by a prophet who is expressing an element of the Creator's heart who is deeply emotional who sees the world through the eyes of drama, who responds with, with feeling, and who doesn't want to just get to the point, because life isn't about just getting to the point and getting results, who, who expresses himself poetically. That's the God of Israel. Yeah, there's a side to him where he's just facts and prose, etc. But when we see the opening chapters of Genesis, we see a God who is very right-brained. Does that mean he's not left-brained? Yeah, he's left-brained too, because he created human beings with both hemispheres. But sometimes in, um, it, sometimes in church history, we've had people who are more teacher types, who are more left-brained like me, and we can be very boring, we can be very dry, and sometimes we have tyrannized the body of Christ. Sometimes theologians who like to get, get in their heads and get super intellectual and talk about stuff that's totally irrelevant and really boring terms, they take over movements. 
And it's just incredibly dry and boring. And the artists in the church die. And they just can't, they're bored out of their skulls. And they leave. And so they, and they, and they go and they start artistic movements. And they go and make music videos and stuff like that. And, um, and it becomes, you know, secular or whatever. And their hearts are, their hearts are like refugees. And that's sad. And that is changing in our generation. In our generation, there's been such a movement in the body of Messiah to embrace like right, uh, right brain expression and thinking to, to, to show that there's a place for the arts. I mean, there's always been that, right? Like there's, there's always been a place for the arts in the church, but there's more of a place in the last generation. And uh, I love that. I, I want to see us break out in that too. I want to see us as a community grow and, uh, and, and embrace that. But anyway, that, that's an aspect that we really, we really see in this. I, I, I suggest to you that if the creation is poetry, if it is song, if it is like an ongoing drama of cosmic proportions, maybe that's the only way we can really understand it. Like, look at a tree sometime and just look at that tree as a poem. Look at, next time you see a bird outside your window, look at that bird as a song. Next time you read a chapter of world history or church history, read that as epic drama. Or look at it as, part, look at it as a small chapter in an ongoing epic drama. And the creation's going to come alive. The world's going to get a little brighter. And maybe, maybe history will make some sense. Um, that's, that's, um, that's, that's something that we get from these chapters. Okay, here, here are a couple of reasons that Creation, the doctrine of creation is important. Um, I'll, I'll read you a, a short quote from Justin Martyr. Uh, Justin Martyr was a sage of the early Yeshua movement. He lived in the one, mid-100s. Of course, theologically, all of his ideas didn't... You know, people would disagree with some of his ideas theologically. But he did a great job defending the gospel, especially uh, to the Greek philosophical world. This is something that Justin Martyr said. We shall not injure God by remaining ignorant of Him, but shall depri- deprive ourselves of His friendship. So you know, if we choose to remain ignorant of the Creator, you're not going to be hurting so mu- Him so much as you're going to be hurting yourself because you're going to miss out on His friendship. I mean, you just think about that. If He's really who it says He is, if He's there, He's the greatest person you could ever know. He's the most wonderful friend. And if the, that, that's why the doctrine of creation is important. Because it's about a person that, that you could know personally. Um, secondly, um, the doctrine of creation is important because truth is important. Either there's a creator or there isn't. And if there is, that's a fact to be reckoned with. That's a fact to be factored into how you think. Um, in, in the scriptural worldview, there are two sides. There is a good side and there is an evil side. And the good side is based on truth. It is, a, it is a kingdom of truth. And the evil side is based on darkness and ignorance and lies. In fact, the, the king of the evil side is called the deceiver of the whole world. The progenitor of lies. So if there's a creator, then that's the truth. And that's, why, that's another reason that this is important. Uh, thirdly, the doctrine of creation is important because everyone on this planet was created to worship. And everyone on this planet will worship something or somebody. And either we embrace the doctrine of creation and we worship the Creator as He overwhelmingly deserves and as is only, right? 
Or we're going to end up worshipping somebody else or something else. This is what Paul had to say about this. Uh, Paul Shaul, one of, the, one of the luminaries of the early Yeshua movement, he wrote, he wrote an epistle, like a packed letter to, the early, uh, to an early Yeshua congregation in Rome. And this is what he said. They, referring to humanity and their downward slide into degradation, they exchanged God's truth for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature, stuff that was created, instead of the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So did you hear that? Ultimately, everybody's going to either go for the truth or go for the lie. Everybody's going to worship the Creator, or you're going to end up worshipping and serving and giving your life and your resources and your emotional energy to something that's just going to burn, or some person that, as a human, will let you down if you worship that person. So that's, why, that's another reason that's important. It's also important because if there is a creator, then his word is true. And at the culmination of history, if you're his friend, you get to live with him forever. And it's going to be wonderful. And if you choose not to be his friend, he's going to kick you out of his universe. And that is not where you want to go. Uh, fourthly, the doctrine of creation is important because it says that the creator is glorious. And you were created to look like Him. You were made in His image. You're like a snapshot of Him. And do you know what that means? If you have a glorious Creator, and you were created in His image, you have a glory. Uh, Paul, writing to an early Yeshua community in Corinth, he had this to say, created in the image of God means you are the glory of God. He actually said that. That, that almost sounds blasphemous. That almost sounds heretical. But he said, as a human being created as God's image, you are his glory. So you have a glory. And if we don't even believe in the creator, what's left? You believe you're descended from a blob. You believe that you're just some animated little chunk of stuff running around until you die and rot. That's not glorious. That's inglorious. Here's what, here's what Shaul had to say in Romans chapter 1 about that. He said, even though they knew God... They didn't honor him as God or give thanks. So there was a point where people, humanity knew they had a creator and they made a conscious choice not to acknowledge him, not to honor him as he deserved, and not to thank him. They rejected gratitude. And this is what happened. They became futile in their speculations. They just began pontificating about the stupidest things and theorizing and it was dumb and their foolish heart was darkened. It's like their inner who they were just became plunged into darkness and ignorance and lack of vision. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So this is what happened. These people could have had the glory of God who is immortal, who is, who is incorruptible. And they exchanged it for some stupid little idol in the closet. And there's a principle in the word. It says that you will become what you worship, ultimately. So if you worship a God who is heroic, who is sheer love, who is highly intelligent, who is committed, that is who you will become. If you worship a pop star who is depressed and who commits suicide, you have a high rate of going that route also. If you worship a thing that is inanimate, you will become dumbed down. You will become dumb. That's the idea here. And they could have had the glory of God. 
and they, they, they left it. There was a fall from it. And so, you have glory. But you're only going to live in that glory. You're only going to experience that if you believe in the Creator. That's why the doctrine of creation is important. Now, here, here are some common objections to the doctrine of creation. Agnostics would say, you know, we just can't know. It's basically, agnosticism is a position of not having a position. It's kind of like, you know, I, we just can't really know how this universe happened. We can't really understand how it came about. Often parents will tell their children this, and then they wonder why their parents don't, don't respect them. It's because the parents are basically saying, you know, son, I'm totally clueless. I, I don't have a clue why we're here, how we got here. Man, ouch. Um, that's, that's agnosticism. And you know what? If you're an agnostic you may have been burned by fundamentalists. You may have seen people that were said, this is the way it is, and they were ugly about it. And, and you say, you know what? That person's arrogant, and I don't want to be like that. So I, I want to take a humble approach. I want to stay human and sensitive and open. And so I'm just going to say, you know what? We can't really know for sure. But uh, I, I would suggest to you, if you're an agnostic, there aren't just two routes. There isn't the route of either taking a non-position and saying we really can't know, or being an ugly fundamentalist. There is a middle road of staying human, of having a sensitive heart, and going on a quest for truth, and saying we can know, and I'm going to, I'm going to have hope. Um, there are limited options. There are only so many options for how the universe came into existence, too. You can know. Uh, sometimes I think agnosticism is just a convenient excuse for copping out, checking out, and not bothering to think. Sometimes that's agnosticism. People will be like, yeah, well, you know, I just don't know. I mean, if there's a God, then why is there evil? And you know what? Sometimes people are sincere in that objection. But sometimes people are just, they just don't care. And they're lazy. And they don't want to think about it. And so they just come up with some dumb excuse that they've heard other people say. And they're just parroting it. And it's highly unintelligent. And, and if you're an agnostic, or if you're someone who just says, you know, I... I don't know if I can really know and I don't really care and I'm too lazy to think about it, I encourage you, break out of that mindset. Start thinking about truth. Go, go on a humble quest to discover it. Um, atheists, um, I, I heard recently, there are basically two tenets to atheism. Tenet number one, there is no God. Tenet number two, and I hate him. Those are the two tenets of atheism. There is no God and I hate him. And you know what? That, if you've ever talked with atheists, that's often very true. Often someone is an atheist because they've been burned by religious people or because they don't like the God of the Bible. And atheism is the only like, legitimate or seemingly valid worldview. And so they grab hold of that one. I'm going to give you a couple reasons. Okay, if you are an atheist and if, if you have an atheist engine running under your head, hood, I'm going to throw a couple wrenches into your engine, and I'm going to clog those gears, and hopefully just give you pause to stop and reconsider the concept of atheism, that there isn't a creator. Reconsider the concept of evolution, that everything is just randomly by chance getting better. And that's why we're here. Uh, number one, I mentioned this last week, but it is so powerful, I want to mention it again. The sun is shrinking. Uh, two astronomers, Eddie and Bornazian in 1979, came out with a study, the, the conclusion of which suggested that the sun is shrinking at a rate of five feet a second, which is roughly five miles a year. Uh, that, isn't, that doesn't sound like much, because the sun roughly is 897,000 miles in diameter. Everybody say 897,000 miles. So it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, a couple miles a year, no biggie. 
And uh, yeah, like, you know, it's not going to burn out in our generation, so I'm not going to freak out about that. There were several studies by other astronomers that came out in the couple years after that, um, suggesting that the sun was shrinking at different rates. The sun is shrinking. We can know that much because it is a massive ball of fusion. It's burning itself out as we speak, right? Some uh, more conservative calculations that came out after that would suggest that the sun is shrinking at a rate of one foot a second instead of five feet, which was the original suggestion, which would be about a mile a year. Everybody say a mile a year. Okay, let's go with the conservative estimate for a moment. The sun shrinking by a mile a year. Do you know what that means? It means the sun, which is only 870,000 miles wide, a hundred million years ago would have been roughly 1,150 times bigger than it is. Okay? So, um, evolution would suggest a hundred million years ago, you know, there were already animals that were at a certain level of existence. Um, they were already pretty well, well developed. Um, but if you look at the rate of the sun, the sun was over a thousand times bigger then than it was now. Those life forms would have been cooked out of existence. If, that, if the sun is shrinking at a, uh, at a rate like that. Okay, let's go further. Billions of years ago, they will say. Let's just say one billion years ago. There were those original little life forms that were beginning to develop in the, in, in the, in the goop. And in, in the, the oceans that were bubbling all around planet Earth. A billion years ago, the sun was over 10,000 times bigger than it, was today, than it is today at that rate. Nothing would survive on the earth revolving around a sun that was over 10,000 times bigger than it is today. You're talking about intense heat. The sun was that big at that time and today. Yeah, if the sun was around at that... Okay, yeah, if the sun was that big then, it wouldn't exist today. Why is that? Because it would have passed critical mass. It would have passed critical mass. Okay. Yeah. Now, you do have... You do, okay, so that's, that's, that's what evolution would say. Okay? You do also have what's called old earth creationists or people who would say, yes, there was intelligent design in the beginning, but it took millions of years ago. Genesis chapter 1 actually took place over millions of years. Again, the, the one fact that the sun is shrinking disproves old earth creationism. The fact that the sun is shrinking leaves only the option of young earth creationism as a valid conclusion. Uh, number two, carbon-14 dating. Often people will point to carbon-14 dating and say, well, look, you know, we found this bone from Neanderthal and carbon-14 dating would point to him being at least however many millions of years old. Uh, carbon-14 dating is highly inconsistent, unreliable, and is something of a joke. They have carbon-14 dated things like... Uh, Trees that were petrified by Mount St. Helens and the ash coming down and those, um, those distorted atmospheric conditions. And, 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 and carbon-14 dating said, yeah, this tree is however many... It was like wildly disproportionate. It was totally off. So carbon-14 dating, sorry, um, that doesn't work. Uh, thirdly, we have a law, and it is a mutable law in the universe. It cannot be broken called the second law of thermodynamics. Basically, the second law of thermodynamics says the universe is decomposing, it's falling apart on a molecular level. Everything is coming apart. Everything is breaking down. And um, as you get older, you begin to feel that one a little more. Uh, we also call that the law of entropy. Every, uh, popularly, that's called Murphy's law. 
there's, there's a higher probability that stuff will go wrong than it will go right. All right? So pessimists love the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, Murphy's law. They, they would cite it as the reason for their pe- pessimism. They'd say, see, I'm being realistic. Everything is going down the tubes. But you know what? That is a fact. And the second law of thermodynamics is in direct contradistinction to the suggestion that everything is evolving upwards, that everything is getting better. It just isn't. The universe is falling apart on a molecular level. Um, fourthly, evolutionary, uh, evolutionism and atheism still doesn't have any valid explanation for how everything came about. We who believe the doctrine of creation would say, Yes, there was an intelligent being at the beginning. There was a higher power who was a person, and he generated the cosmos. The world we live in is a piece of artwork, and that explains a lot of why there's beauty, why there is reason, why there is um, like why there's so much symmetry and uh, and uh, consistency. Atheism would say, yes, there was a beginning. There was a huge explosion, and everything just kind of now here we are, billions of years later. The Big Bang. But you know what? Where did the Big Bang come from? Yes. How did the Big Bang happen? What? And who heard it? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So again, you know, an atheist is clueless when it comes to the origins of the universe too. You still don't know. What's this cup made of? Uh, atoms? What are the atoms made of? I don't know. Where did the cosmos come from? The Big Bang. Where did the Big Bang come from? I don't know. So... Those are, a couple, those are a couple lines of reasoning you can use when you engage people who believe in atheism or that we all evolved. Um, all that to say, like, if you're an agnostic or an atheist, I encourage you, go on a quest for the Creator. Consider some of these facts that take down the whole concept of evolution right there. That's one big wrench that will stop your engine in its tracks. Um, now, Jewish people, Judaism today would say, yes, there is a God and He did create the universe, but it wasn't the Father and the Son. Yeshua as the Son of God was not the one through whom the cosmos were generated. Um, Muslims would say something similar. Allah, or, uh, or, you know, which is just the Arabic word for God, but that, whatever, that's a kind of disputed. Anyway, they would say Allah created the universe. All right? But Allah doesn't have a Son. He is numerical one. Is what, so that's what Judaism and Islam say. Now, if you are Jewish, I encourage you to open your Bible to Proverbs chapter 30 and read the following. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. The book of Mishle has this to say. And if you're not Jewish, you can read it too. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Now let me ask you, are those creationistic terms? Does that sound like the actions of the higher power who created the universe? Yes. Yes, definitely. Those are the, that's the same kind of language that is used in uh, other chapters of Proverbs, in the book of Isaiah, and in the book of Job, to describe the creator of the universe and uh, what he was doing at the beginning. This verse in Proverbs goes on to say, What's his name? Or his son's name? Surely you know. So did you get that? What's the creator's name? Or his son's name? So the book of Proverbs very strongly says, the creator has a son, and his son has a name. And you know what his name is? That's right, Yeshua. 
And, now, at that time, when Mishle were written, people didn't know the name of Yeshua, that that would be the name of Mashiach. But they did know the Creator's name, Yahweh. What is, in the Hebrew it says, what is His name and His Son's name? Could it be that it's the same, this, this same concept in the book of Revelation, where it says that the 144,000, for instance, have His name, the Lamb's name, and the name of His Father written on, on their foreheads. Are there two names written on the foreheads of the 144,000? Or is that simply the name of God, Yahweh? I suggest it's the name of God, Yahweh. What does that mean? It means one of the titles of Yeshua the Son is Yahweh. His name and His Father's name, according to the book of Revelation. According to the book of Proverbs, what is His name and His Son's name? Because you know it. So this is... I'm, I'm going to give you uh, the way traditional Judaism would explain this verse. Um, I have here an art scroll, Tanakh. I love art scroll. They make beautiful publications. Uh, if you want a traditional Jewish translation, um, check out art scroll. I, um, I, on a literary level, I think it's the best translation I've ever read. Sometimes not the most accurate, but very beautiful literarily and poetic. And they have the best vocab too. I think, uh, the, I, I think even better than the New American Standard. New American Standard is my favorite in terms of vocabulary and choice of words. This even tops even that, if you ask me. Anyway, this is, what, um, this is how Proverbs 30, verse 4, reads in, um, in, in, in um, Art Scroll. Who, and then in parentheses it says, But Moses ascended to heaven and descended. Who else gathered the wind in his palm? Who else tied the waters in a cloak? Who established all the ends of the earth? What's his name and what's his son's name, if you know? Okay, so traditional Judaism inserts the words, but Moses. Who but Moses did all this stuff? What's Moses' name and what's his son's name? Surely you know. Okay, um, commentary here. A little commentary says, Solomon realized that he should not consider himself greater than Moses. Moses ascended to heaven to receive the Torah and bring it down to earth for Israel. Moses controlled the winds. And then it has references for each thing. Moses restricted the waters of the sea. Moses erected the tabernacle, and as the Talmud explains, if not for the service, that is to say of the tabernacle and Torah, the foundations of, of heaven and earth would not have been established. All right? So Judaism says, this is talking about Moses. That does not make sense. I'm, I'm sorry. Just think, why would Solomon say, what is Moses' name and what's his son's name? If you actually read what happened to Moses' sons, um, they didn't have a very... They, they had an inglorious history after that. One of his sons, one of his descendants actually became, uh, led the nation, that is to say the tribe of Dan, specifically in idolatry. In the book of Judges we read that. Um, so, if you're Jewish and you don't believe in Yeshua, I, I, I challenge you to seriously consider this, this passage. What is the name of the Creator and what's his son's name? Because you know. Uh, if you're Muslim, then you'll say, well, the Old and New Testaments have been corrupted, the scribes changed it over time, and so we can't trust the creation documents anyway, and we can't trust the, the book of Proverbs. Uh, if, if that's what you would say, I would challenge you to reconsider and to read your history. Uh, the Jewish people have very meticulously maintained the scriptures for thousands of years. The Dead Sea Scrolls, when they came out, were exactly the same as the Bibles that we have today. Uh, the New Testament also. There are more... There are more like textual shards and chunks from the New Testament than un any other historical document from ancient times. T 
tens of thousands of scraps of paper that the New Testament was written on, dating all the way back to the 200s and 100s. And guess what? They're all almost exactly the same as the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament we have today. There there have even been passages um, archaeologically that have been written from the first temple era, and they're the same as the Bible that we have today. So if you're a Muslim, I challenge you to consider that. The Bible has not been changed. The scriptures have not been corrupted. You can trust the creation narrative in the book of Genesis. You can trust the book of Proverbs. And think about this too. If you're Muslim, you believe in Isa, you believe in Yeshua as a prophet, and you're only going to really read about him and get the details of his life in the New Testament. And I just proved that it is reliable. So if you're a Muslim, go back and read the New Testament and look at the Bible that Jesus read. He quotes from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament that we have today, in the same form. So there, there's, there's some historical consistency here that if, if you're coming from an Islamic viewpoint, you really need to consider. Okay, here are a couple of practical conclusions that we can draw from, from these chapters. Uh, firstly, like, world history is going somewhere. There's a creator, and he, he, is, he is sheer love. He's a very joyous person. So life has meaning. You have a purpose. There's rationale. You live in a world of artwork, and beauty, and song, and poetry. That is what you wake up to every morning. For those of us who want to smell the coffee, who want to take a deep, deep sniff, who want to open our eyes to, to, to see the world on that level. Um, number two, uh, we read in the final chapters of Job, the creator himself like, comes to Job, and he has several chapters of conversation. He says, Job, you weren't around in the beginning when I made this place, when I was creating dinosaurs and all kinds of fantastic animals. Who are you to complain? Who are you to criticize me? So that's number two. As little tiny hu- created human beings... Humility is a smart route to take. It's the only smart response to understanding that we are created and that there's a great creator. And then thirdly, this is our final thought in this message, and this is extremely practical. This can be our response as created human beings, acknowledging that there's a creator, stating that we believe the early chapters of Genesis. Don't work on Saturday and treat it as special. Because the creation narrative, actually, if you want to flip the slide to the next thing, it kind of gives us, a, gives us some thought here. The creation narrative concludes by saying, on the seventh day, God didn't do anything except for rest. God actually pronounced the seventh day of the week as holy, as special. And God blessed that 24-hour block of time. Why did he do that? Was he really exhausted and he needed to take a breather? Could it be that he did that to set an example for us? Yes, absolutely. Um, So, get this. I love this fact. The first Sabbatarian in world history was God. A Sabbatarian is someone who honors the Sabbath, who rests on Saturday. The very first Sabbatarian was God. (laughs) Before there was anybody else on the planet except for Adam and maybe Eve. So, you worship a God who is a Sabbatarian. Right? Isn't that cool? Um, now, did you notice too that God said the seventh day of the week is, it's not just holy, it's not just a day to dedicate to Him and to engage in spiritual activities, stuff that is focused around Him and His community, um, making the day special. He also said He blessed it. So let me ask you, are you like Jacob? Remember Jacob? He was like, I'm going to wrestle all night long. I'm going to go through severe discomfort. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. 
You know, there's a generation that was rising up with that desperation. And for us as a generation who want everything that he has for us, a logical move would be to start celebrating Shabbat from Friday evening to Saturday evening because you will experience his blessing in a new way. You will come into more of the blessing that he has for you, biblically speaking, according to the first chapters of Genesis. Now, some people would say, you know... Even though the Bible says the seventh day, that doesn't, does it really matter which day? I mean, you know, does it really matter that Muslims do the Sabbath on Friday? Does it really matter that Christians do it on Sunday? Maybe it doesn't really matter. Maybe the idea is just to have a day of the week that we rest. Um, the Bible says over and over, the seventh day, the seventh day, the seventh day. The only reason you can make up an, a, another day of the week or kind of play around with that one is if you don't believe the text. Um, some people, and this is very popular thought, would say, well, the Sabbath was changed to Sunday. Um, they would point to several verses. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, it says the early believers were gathered together on the first day of the week. If you look at the text, that was actually Saturday evening when they gathered together, and that was still the end of, the, that was the end of Shabbat, going into the new week. So if we really wanted to be biblical, as like the body of Christ, we wouldn't be meeting on Sunday morning at 11 necessarily. Maybe we'd all be getting together on Saturday evening. And I think that would be kind of cool, actually. Because that's when all the fun happens. That's when the world has all their fun. Maybe we should be leaders in showing what real life is about, what real meaning is, what, real, what a real worship experience looks like. Um, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul gave some practical instructions. He said, okay, I'm coming. You need to set aside some finances for this gift that's going to the saints in Jerusalem. So set it aside on the first day of the week. Again, when did the believers meet? Saturday evening. That was after Shabbat. Of course, that kind of makes sense. But it doesn't mean that Shabbat isn't Shabbat anymore. Also, Jewish believers traditionally wouldn't handle money. So they wouldn't do that on Saturday. They would wait till sundown and then they would collect the finances that were going to go to that gift for Paul. That's how I understand it anyway. Um, finally, in Revelation chapter 1, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And people would say, see, there you go. That's Sunday. The Sabbath was changed to Sunday. Okay, let's just say for a moment that Sunday is the Lord's Day. Let's say that Yeshua being raised on Sunday actually made Sunday the Lord's Day. That doesn't mean Shabbat was changed. Nowhere in the Old Testament was the seventh day of the week, Sabbath, called the Lord's Day. It doesn't say he was resting. Yeah, and it doesn't say he was resting. And so... He was set on the Lord of the Sabbath. Yep, sure. And he is the, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So, you know, I believe that Saturday is the Lord's Day. Um, I believe that Shabbat wasn't changed. But even if you believe that Sunday is the Lord's Day, great, celebrate the resurrection on Sunday. But that doesn't change the fact that Saturday is still Shabbat. Right. It's Saturday. Yeshua being raised on Let's say, let's just say, Yeshua being raised on Sunday, that didn't change Sunday to the seventh day of the week. Now, here's something interesting. If you look at a North American calendar, what is the seventh day of the week? Saturday. Saturday. It's kind of nice. Even calendar publishers know this one. Unless you live in Europe. In Europe, do you know what the seventh day of the week is? In a European calendar, Sunday is the seventh day of the week. Kind of frustrating, actually. So you got that one a little off. Um, Now, I actually do believe that the Sabbath was changed to Sunday, but it wasn't changed by God, it wasn't changed by Christ, and it wasn't changed by his apostles. It was changed by apostate church leaders centuries later. Well, okay, it wasn't really changed, they just tried to, right? Um, pull, pull a switcheroo. Um, 
I'm not going to go into all the history of that. If you really care about church history, if you really believe that the Sabbath was changed to Sunday, I would challenge you to read this excellent and very academically sound book by Samuel Bakioki. It's called From Sabbath to Sunday, A Historical Investigation of the Rise of Sunday Observance in Early Christianity. It's actually published, um, yeah, it was published in, um, in communication with the Pontifical Gregorian University Press of Rome in uh, 1977. He documents very clearly that the, the drift from the early church observing Saturday as Shabbat to doing Sunday as, uh, as the new Sabbath was not biblical. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, uh, just, just what, I, what I covered. Um, I, I believe that this was a, a primary failure of the early Protestant reformers. Now, the reformers did a lot of good I, I see myself as being part of that tradition. Sola Scriptura, I march under that banner. But at the same time, I don't feel like they took it all the way. And the early, early Catholics in the 1500s didn't believe that either. Um, in response to the Protestant Reformation, there was a big damage, you could say like a, a damage control conference in the Roman Catholic world called the Council of Trent. In the Council of Trent, this is what the Archbishop of Reggio had to say. And this was very influential in the stance that the Roman Catholic Church has taken since then. The Protestants claim to stand upon the written word only. They profess to hold the scriptures alone as the standard of faith. They justify their revolt by the plea that the church has apostatized from the written word and follows tradition. Now, the Protestants claim that they stand upon the written word alone isn't true. Their profession of holding the scriptures alone as the standard of faith is actually false. And here's the proof. The written word explicitly enjoins the observance of the seventh day as the Sabbath. They don't observe the Sabbath day, seventh day, but reject it. If they truly hold the scriptures alone as the standard, they would be observing the seventh day as it's enjoined in the scripture throughout. Yet they not only reject the observance of the Sabbath as enjoined in the written word, but they've adopted and do practice the observance of Sunday, for which they have only the tradition of the, of the church, that is the Catholic church, Consequently, the claim of Scripture alone, sola scriptura, as the standard fails, and the doctrine of Scripture and tradition as essential is fully established, the Protestants themselves being judges. That was very insightful. I think that's true. Now, the early Reformers would say this. Yes, the seventh day of the week, Saturday, is the Sabbath. Luther acknowledged that. But then they would go on to say, but that's for the Jews, and we're Christians, so it doesn't apply to us. Never mind that the other Ten Commandments aren't just for the Jews, they're for the Christians also. Um, often, uh, you know, uh, often in Reformed theology, there's a distinction made between moral and civil-slash-ceremonial law. So they'd say, you know, so the, uh, the other commandments, those are all moral. But the Sabbath, that's ceremonial. Says who? Who are we to slice and dice the Ten Commandments and say, yeah, well, you know, I think this one's moral, so that applies, but this one's ceremonial, so that doesn't apply. You could say that about adultery. Yeah, well, you know, marriage is actually ceremonial because it's a ceremony, it's an institution. So, you know, the thing about not committing adultery, that's actually not part of the moral law. That's ceremonial, so it's okay now. I mean, really, you could draw that conclusion if you applied that kind of reasoning. It just doesn't work. Um, Furthermore, to respond to that concept that the Sabbath is only for the Jewish people, Isaiah chapter 66 was touted by the early church as being a description of the thousand-year era where Yeshua came back. And Isaiah 66 says in the future, everybody's going to worship from Sabbath to Sabbath. That means one of two things. Everybody in the millennial kingdom are going to be Jews, or maybe Shabbat is actually for everybody. 
The first people to celebrate Shabbat weren't Jewish. They were God and Adam and Eve, the progenitors of all humanity. So maybe Shabbat is actually the heritage of, of all humanity. Yeah. So I'll uh, leave, you with, leave you with that thought. So, you know, I mean, like, you know, we, we talk about Shabbat a lot. We celebrate Shabbat. But I encourage you, Shabbat is important. It's something we stand for. And let's continue to grow in our celebration of Shabbat. Let's continue to grow in our passion to make it a special day, to make it as dedicated to the Creator as we can, and make it a day where we really honor Him in all of our actions, in our conversation, and uh, stuff like that. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.